I want to turn to the passage in that was read in John 7:53 through 8:11 and a picture the title of this message is a picture of just mercy. This text is one of the favorites of many of you in here, I'm sure, especially those who've come from a hard background, maybe a sin uh, sin-filled life of adultery or fornication uh, of of uh, licentiousness and living in the world prior to coming to Christ, this text is one of the favorites, okay? The fact is this story has the feel of a great drama. When I read it, every time I read it, no matter how many times I read it, I think this is tailor-made for one of those uh, Lifetime movies or, uh, you know, some some tearjerker. It's tailor-made for it. It's a small script. But it's action-packed. It's full of drama and emotion. You can feel yourself in this story somewhere. You can see yourself. I think it's a very, very beautiful story. And it seems to climax the information that we've been studying in chapter 7. And it leads into the stuff we'll study in chapter 8. But this text is probably one that is most often questioned by critical scholars as to whether it belongs in this, in this passage or not. Okay? There are a lot of passages. I just want you to take time. If you've got a Bible, a modern translation, ESV, NASB, New King James, um, any of those translations, you will notice probably that this text is either in italics or it's got brackets around it or it's got a footnote if you've got a MacArthur Study Bible, you can read his note on it. There's a lot of questions about this text, okay? I first thought, and, and I wanted to cower away from what all those things have to do with it, but, you know, the longer I studied and the more I listened to the controversy surrounding it, the more I realized I'd rather, and I talked with Dave, and Dave said, I'd rather hear it from you than somebody else. So deal with it. I want to deal with it in an introduction then move into this, the, the message, okay? Now, you're going to have to focus on what I'm saying because the tendency is going to be to shut me off about halfway through this and say, this guy, you know, he's da- this is dangerous, okay? Stick with me. This is controversial, okay? And it does offend us if we're not careful. And I'm going to try to be careful, and I may be looking down a lot. That's not because I'm not trying to be connected to you. I'm trying to say what I mean and mean what I say, okay? It's very important, so bear with me as we go through this. It's clear as we look at uh, this text, both inside the text and the external evidence on the text, that this story was not included by the Apostle John as he wrote his account of the gospel. This text was not in his original manuscript. Here are some of the facts that surround this text that lead us to this conclusion, and I might say by most scholars, most pastors, most people you listen to on Grace Radio, all agree with what I'm saying, okay? I'm not on a limb in some liberal sect of the church. This is the mainstream of of thought about this text. The language used in this text is not classically matched to the, the writing of John. In other words, how do I know that? Well, let's look at a couple of things. First of all, it mentions the Mount of Olives. John never, ever mentions the Mount of Olives, ever in his writing. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention it often. 
John seems to go out of his way not to mention it in other texts. He never pairs the scribes and the Pharisees. That's a common uh, writing tool of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's absent from the Scripture in John. And he never mentions the scribes, the lawyers, those who were Pharisees probably, but were especially uh, good at, at points of the law and interpreting, interpreting the law. Furthermore, the, the very type of language used in this paragraph is not John's language. I know it's a short paragraph, but it's rough. John is so beautiful and eloquent when he writes, and this passage is very rough, okay? When you read it and, and you, you see it, it this doesn't fit John very well. Secondly, this story interrupts the flow of thought between John 7.52 and 8.12. I want you to look at 7.52. They replied, these Pharisees, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, verse 12 in chapter 8. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the Pharisees then get into a discussion with him about being the light of the world. Notice this is around the Feast of Tabernacles, as we've been talking about. The first sign of the Feast of Tabernacles was water over the altar, which, simp- which was a symbol used in that tradition in, in the feast. And the light, the torches that surrounded the feast were also a symbol to point to the Messiah. And so it would be logical that John would show and the conversation would flow like this. Jesus is claiming to be the water of life for these people. And I don't even believe a prophet comes from Galilee. And Jesus said, you think that's bad? I'm also the light of the world. And then they question him about that. That's the way it seems most logical when you look at the text. Okay? So we're looking at internal things that witness to what I'm trying to point out to you. When a text, uh, this text is also placed several places in manuscripts. Okay? It sometimes comes after verse 36 in chapter 7. Before he talks about the river of water. It sometimes comes after verse 44 in other manuscripts. Before the debate between the the Pharisees' witnesses and their officers and themselves over Jesus. And sometimes, in the earliest manuscripts, by the way, it comes at the end of Luke 21. It is not even in John. Now, what does that mean? We don't have the original, do we? It's gone. God took it from us. When you see a text moved around like this in ancient writing, it means those who are copying the text are unsure about it. They don't know where it goes, okay? They don't know where it fits. And they're trying to find the place that it fits, that it most logically fits. So we have that external witness. This text, fourth, this text is left out of all of the Eastern tradition until the 12th century. Nobody in the Eastern church recognized this story until the 12th century, the 1100s, okay? Now, the Western church accepted it rather early, and we see it. We see it in the talking of, of Augustine, uh, Augustine, of, uh, of, of uh, Jerome, and others. So you might be questioning all these things said. Why in the world would I preach on a text that I'm not sure John wrote? Well, the reason is very simple. 
We have human authors, and we have, we have God the author through the Holy Spirit. God not only wrote the original manuscripts as, where, you know, as they were, but he preserved the process by which it was passed down to us. So when the critical scholars, the liberals and others, begin to say, see, this throws a bad light on the Bible. I mean, how can you trust a book where you're not even sure this story was in the original? How can you even trust this book? I say, because it, it witnesses to the sovereignty of God, because this is true about this story. Also, here's where you can tune me back in, if, if that first part bothers you. It, this story does not contradict the person or the character of Jesus Christ as He has presented to us throughout all of Scripture. This story bears witness to the character of what we would think Christ was and know that He was by the other Scripture. Okay? First of all. Second of all, why would I preach this? Because this story was told in oral tradition from the very early days of the church. Papias who died in 100 A.D., told this story to all of his students as legitimate, authoritative, and historical. Matter of fact, Papias might have been eyewitness to the story or known someone who was eyewitness to it. Eusebius says, without question, one of the early church history writers says, without question, this is a valid, historical, factual account of a dealing of Christ with the Pharisees and a woman caught in adultery. Jerome, Augustine, the, in the third century, we find this story in the Apostolic Constitution, which is, which is just a witness, an external witness to the historical and trustworthy nature of the story that we're looking at today. We cannot, though I've made, I think, I, I've been convinced of the fact that this is not John. We can't say absolutely it wasn't. And it is in our manuscript. And because I believe in the sovereignty of God in both the inspiration and expression to the original writers and the preserving of the Scripture as it's been passed down to the saints for centuries, I believe we should preach, preach it as a valid text. I believe it. I think you should believe it. It should be accepted as equal with all other scriptures as a truth for us passed down from the very beginnings of the church. In other words, like God usually does, when the critics think they found a reason to disbelieve the Bible, God uses it to strengthen the faith of his men on the text they deal with on a daily basis. If anything, dealing with this text has strengthened my confidence in the Bible, not weakened it. It's strengthened the fact that I believe it's God who said it, not weakened it. It's added to, not taken away. And I challenge you, don't be scared to enter into these things and look at them and logically think through them because the Spirit of God in you will testify to the validity of God's Word. No matter what the secular scholar or the liberal scholar in the church wants to talk about, this will be a beautiful, beautiful strengthening of your faith, this text. This is a story that emphasizes the just mercy of Jesus Christ. So many times when we come to this story, we focus on the fact that, God, that Christ lovingly calls for this woman not to be stoned. 
We look at Christ's mercy and His love, and we're right to do that. But we forget, and we miss a great, significant point to our lives that's presented in this text. I want us to see not so much the adulterous, not so much the Pharisees, though we're going to talk about them. I want us to see Christ. I want us to worship Him as a loving, merciful, and just Savior. It might be helpful if you realize that most people in the outside world would think that my title is totally contradictory. You cannot be just and merciful. You cannot do it. As a matter of fact, no other religion in the world believes you can be just and merciful. No other religion believes you can have a God that is wrathful against sin and lovingly, graciously saves the sinners. You won't find it anywhere else. I intentionally put my title this way. I hope when it goes on the web, somebody sees it and listens to this message. A picture of just mercy. Seems to be a contradiction. But I will hopefully show to you from this text, it is absolutely in keeping with the character of God. First of all, I want us to see from this text that Jesus condemns self-righteous hypocrisy. If we look at this text and we say, what do, what do we find here? Let's look at it. Look with me at 753. They went each to his own house. I'm just going to make some running commentary on the first two verses, and then we're going to jump into verse 3. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. All of the apostles, the Pharisees, the Jews in the crowd had a place to go to shelter them as they slept at night. And the Son of God, the Creator of the world, had nowhere to lay His head. Jesus didn't have a house. He said to Himself, to His disciples, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere where He can lay His head. Look at the humility which Christ has introduced. Not as some... I mean, think about it. He's the King of the universe, and Jerusalem doesn't even have a house for Him. Think about the humility in His birth. That's what I think of in this text. It's not any different from when He was born, is it? Bethlehem had no place for Him in the end. Go sleep in a cattle stall. That sheds light on the character of who Jesus is. As we get ready to look at this passage, it's good to see that our God, our Jesus, is a humble Savior. He wasn't rich by man's standards. He had to go up into the mount. He spent all night there. And it says early in the morning he came again to the temple. So Jesus comes back down. And look what it says. The people came to him. And that word there means that they were coming all the time. It's like Jesus came in. Now, he didn't do any miracles. He didn't have some big fanfare of followers who were blowing trumpets and sounding his arrival. Jesus showed up in the temple, crowded with all of these people, and word spread word to mouth through the crowd, and they started coming to hear him teach. Talk about a powerful teacher. He wasn't impressive by stature, by looks. 
He didn't do any mighty miracle for them the day before that would make them come back and think they were going to get a miracle today. He just showed up to the temple and people start flocking to him to hear him teach the Word of God. He's a, he's a humble Savior, but he's a powerful teacher. And we're going to see it in this text. He's setting us up for what he wants to teach us in the text. All of the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And that's just generally the way the, the, the rabbis taught in that day. The audience, you think you've got it tough. You get to sit down while I teach. In this day, the audience stood and the teacher sat. We ought to try that sometime. Y'all think it's tough to sit through a 45-minute sermon. We'll try standing through one. And this teaching, by the way, may have gone on most of the day. As people stood and Jesus sat and taught them. And it might have gone on for hours. And it shows a commitment of the people, whether they were saved or lost, to the instruction that Jesus was given, which points again to his powerful teaching ability. He's the greatest teacher to ever touch the face of the earth. The Pharisees even say, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Where do you get your authority from? What school did you go to, by the way, you 12-year-old boy? How do you know so much? And when they just earlier just said, why didn't you arrest him? They said, we've never seen anybody teach like this. His teaching was, was captivating, it was truthful, it was powerful, and it arrested his enemies. They couldn't, they couldn't attack him. They couldn't take him by force just because of the force of his personality and of his powerful teaching, the authority with which he taught from God to them. So we have these introductory comments that set it for us. He's humble, yet he's powerful. He has no place to lay his head, yet he goes to the house of God. And it's his home. And everybody comes and he receives them there as if it's his home, doesn't he? And he sits down in authority and teaches them. So we had the setting. Now to my first point. Jesus condemns self-righteous hypocrisy. And you find this in verses 3 through 9. Now this text has been read, so I'm not going to read it again. But just follow this. The Pharisees used the woman. The Pharisees used the woman as as an object to trap and condemn Jesus. If you read there, follow along in verse 3, you see that they brought this woman to him who was caught in the very act of adultery. I don't mean to be explicit, but you know what that means. They did not instruct her to find her wardrobe and put it on. They seized her in the act and drug her in front of the temple. They were using her as an object to get after their enemies. Their enemy, Jesus Christ. You see, self-righteous people often use people as objects. When I read this story, the Pharisees are as dogs gnashing their teeth at Christ. They're ravenous wolves they don't mind eating through a woman to get to the one they really want, Jesus. Self-righteousness is put on display in this story. Maybe like no place else in the Scripture in, in narrative to say this is the ugliest of sins. The ugliest sin in this story is not the woman's adultery. 
The ugliest sin in this story is the self-righteous religious leaders who would bring a woman to Christ, not that she would be helped, not that she'd even find justice, but so that he would be embarrassed. They're using her as an object. Now, I've said that, and I think I get some agreement because I see a lot of heads nodding. And I just want to insert us here. Because you know what my mind turned to is I'm guilty of this. This church is guilty. The conservative church in general is guilty of using sinful situations as a place to either trap a lost man or prove our point. And I'll give you the one that will get under your skin the most. This is how we treat homosexuals in our day. We figuratively grab them by the arm and cast them naked in front of the crowd and say, this is exhibit number one of the sinfulness of man. Haughtily, pridefully. What will you do with this, lost man? Is this not an abomination? Does this not prove the the justice and 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 the righteousness of God? That this unrighteous person exists? We're guilty. We're Pharisees. We take pride in using people as objects to prove our point. And it's the same thing that was being done to this woman. And it is the gross sin which Christ thunders against by His mercy towards her. I want to tell you, this passage strikes at me humbles me and causes me to repent, not be puffed up and proud. Self-righteous people are more concerned with the law than they are about people. These people are more concerned about being vindicated than they are about whether this woman really is guilty or what what the punishment should be. They're just simply not concerned with her. Self-righteous people twist the law for their own gain. Notice what they say about the law. Would you read with me here? Verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Shock and horror. She's a sinner. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Really? Because Leviticus 10 says that the man and the woman should be stoned. So if you're concerned about justice, where is the male perpetrator in this crime? Why was he not seized? You couldn't get your hands on him? You caught her. Why not him? They twist the law. They pervert the law. They become false witnesses for their own purposes. They see people as objects rather than people and individuals. They love the technicality of the law and its righteous punishments rather than the mercy of God. You ever been there? You find yourself excusing your sin when you break the law and thundering like you're from Mount Sinai against somebody else's sin? Join the club. I do too. And Jesus would say, you fit the Pharisee. It's interesting. How did they catch her? You ever thought about that when you read this? Now, look, the law said she had to be caught 
in the act. Couldn't be by word. It couldn't be suspicion. It couldn't be, well, I saw two people going in the back room, and then they came out, and I just assumed something happened. They had to see it with their own eyes. This smacks to me of a setup. Doesn't it, you? And by the way, the only place where the law commands the stoning of a woman for this crime is when she's a virgin betrothed to be married. That's where the stoning is commanded. Killing them is commanded in other places. Both the male and the woman should be, man and woman should be killed. But stoning is specified for a betrothed young woman who sins in an adulterous way. And so they must have, think of the despicableness of their self-righteousness. They trapped probably a 13 or 14 year old little girl, seized her, flung her in front of the crowd and embarrassed her all for the sake of proving their point and coming off looking like the righteous while Christ was the unrighteous. Self-righteousness is the ugliest sin in this story by far. It's not even close. They, they would stoop to setting up this young girl. Now, I don't know how they set her up. That's not important. But the writer leaves us with enough information to know they must have been involved in it. They had to have two or three witnesses verify the exact things that were occurring in the instance of adultery. In other words, you couldn't, you couldn't be random. You couldn't say, I think it was this or they were in this room. You had to describe the scene. If you contradicted another witness, the whole case was thrown out. If one witness came in and said she was wearing red and another one came in and said she was wearing purple, the whole case is gone. So not only did they trap her, they trapped her and then witnessed it and took notes on it, in mental notes on it, so that they were sure they had their stories the same. And then they brought her to Jesus. Self-righteousness uses people as objects. Self-righteousness is more concerned with the points of the law than they are about people. Self-righteous people are the point here, the most despicable point of the story. Self-righteous people lose the perspective of their part in lost humanity. The fact that the Pharisees bring her and throw her down in front of Christ and accuse her in public shows they've lost sight of their lostness and their sinfulness. See, this woman deserves to be treated this way. But we don't. We're above this kind of sin. We don't do this. And that's why I pick homosexuality. Because let me, let me just maybe describe the way you think of a homosexual in our day. Adultery is excused in our day. It's not a good example. It's just it's sad. But it's just not a good example. It doesn't bring the shock value that this brought in Jesus' day. When you hear somebody committing adultery, you use words like affair and a mistake and all, all, all those kind of things. So adultery has lost its, its edge. You've got to go somewhere else. Well, let me just say, homosexuality. You say things, and I say things like, well, I could imagine doing a lot of things, but I couldn't imagine being involved in that sin. We just took it and put it in a whole other sinful category, didn't we? I could do all these other things, but I could never do that. That's what the Pharisees were doing with this girl. 
Oh, sure, we're sinners, but not like her. I could never do what she's doing. When we deal with homosexuals, we talk about it as only a choice, don't we? We never see it as a struggle against sin that some people are beset with from early in life. We always set it in the category of it's just a personal preferential choice. And I would say that we probably ought to understand it like all other sexual sins. Yes, it's a choice, but yes, people really struggle internally from things that they have no control over. And so the fact that I would say I could never do that passes judgment on their besetting sin while excusing my besetting sin, which might be lying or might be uh, might be a slander or my besetting sin might be a lot of other things. But that, that besetting sin is worse than mine. Yeah, this little girl's an adulterer. That's worse than anything I've ever done. And somebody might have risen in defense and said, well, don't you struggle with it? Well, no, I don't struggle with that. I struggle with this over here, but it's not as bad as what she's doing. You see why I I want you to think in real terms here. Self-righteousness eats at our hearts because we raise ourselves up in judgment over others as if our sin is not what their sin is. As if their struggles are somehow worse than our struggles. As if their disobedience deserves punishment from the law and ours deserves forgiveness and mercy and grace. So it's easy to thunder at the Pharisees and to shake our finger at them. And sometimes hard and convicting when the gun barrel's at us, isn't it? I'm guilty. Look, I don't want you to leave this first point thinking they're guilty. I want you to leave thinking I am guilty. If I'd have been alive and I'd have had the opportunity, I probably would have done the same thing the Pharisees are doing. Matter of fact, I know I would because I did it X times. Last week, a month ago, a year ago, whatever. I've done it. So, let, so Pharisees, this is bad. But remember, we don't need to lose sight of who we are. We are lost and we are just as guilty. Jesus condemns the self-righteous as a hypocrite. Jesus refers to the fact that they are, that Jesus Jesus refers to their test question. Look at their test question. Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They they they're right here at the point. It's the it's the imperative you. What what is it, Jesus? Give us an answer. They're demanding an answer. All right? Okay. And Jesus condemns them for their self righteous hypocrisy. And, and look what he does. Jesus bent down in verse 6, second part, and he writes in the sand. I've heard a lot of messages about that, writing in the sand. It doesn't matter what he wrote. I don't know what he wrote, and you don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows what he wrote. I've heard everything from he was scribbling and not writing anything. In other words, he was ignoring them. And I've heard he was writing down their sin. All sounds great. Again, it would be good for TV created drama. We don't have the facts. Because the emphasis is not what he was writing, but the fact that he's now condemning them. 
He bends down. He ignores them. He bends down, begins to write. Now, this woman's right here on the ground in front of him. And whatever he's doing on the ground, she's watching it, probably fearing what he's going to say, right? Because he is a teacher, and he's a Jew, and she knows what Jews who are teachers say about people like her. So he's there. He's, he's on her level, and the Pharisees are towering over her, her and him, gawking at it. And they begin to repeat their question, insisting on a quick answer. Answer us. We deserve an answer. Answer now. So Jesus then rises to their level, looks them in the eye, and he condemns their self-righteousness. What does he say? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he gets back down on her level and disregards them, confident of their response. He condemns them. How does he condemn them? Now, he's not saying you've got to be perfect in order to hold somebody accountable for their sin. I believe what he said to them is you and I both know that all of you have committed adultery. Now, if you're without the sin of adultery, throw the first stone. Now, whether they committed it physically or they violated it in accord with Matthew 5.32, which he's already taught, if you look at a woman with a lustful thought in your eye, you have committed adultery with her. He's saying you want to stone this woman for something you're guilty of. So if you hadn't done it, go ahead. And he bends back down. He condemns their hypocrisy. He condemns their self-righteousness. He thunders against the hypocrites and the self-righteous. Notice, he does not thunder against this poor woman. When he looks her in the eye in a moment, it's with mercy. When he looks them in the eye, it's justice. You want justice? We'll have justice. And I think he says it to me a lot. As I look at the sinfulness of this world and I think, boy, am I glad I'm not like that publican, a sinner. All the while, we may be leaving the altar unforgiven while the publican beating on his chest or the adulteress caught in adultery leaves forgiven. Because the most despicable sin, I'm going to say it again, in this story is not adultery. It's self-righteousness. And you're guilty of it, and I'm guilty of it. And what do we need to do? We need to repent. We need to repent. Fresh repentance is required because we have probably sinned this way today or at the most yesterday. And if you've got to go back further than that, Ask somebody who knows you well to point out this sin in your life because there's nobody free from this sin in this room. Jesus points out the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And the Pharisees are guilty and convicted over their sin. Look at verse 9. The Bible says that they then heard what he said, and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So they went away in procession. 
I envisioned them head tucked, hands behind their back, scolded dogs walking in a straight line. They came thundering the law at the teacher, and the teacher turned the law and showed them like a mirror of themselves. And they left guilty. They could not dispute what he was saying. He didn't enter into their trivial debate about whether she should be let go or whether she should be stoned. He just took the law and used it for what it's for, and that's to reflect our own sin and said, okay, look in the law. If you're you're free of guilt, go ahead. Stone her. And as he held the mirror of the law up, they saw their sin and left. And they left oldest to youngest. That's always interesting, isn't it? I think it tells us two things. One, the old guys had sinned a lot more than the young guys. Okay, But they also were wise enough to know they were sinners. The older you get, the more sinful you know you are. If you're getting older and more self-righteous, Houston, we got a problem. If the longer you live, the better you feel about yourself. Let's have coffee. Because I want to tell you, every year I become more convinced of my sinfulness. When I do assessment every three months and I look at my life, I think, man, I am a sinner. I got a list of stuff to repent of. And the oldest Pharisees saw it and they left. And the younger ones followed their lead. I don't know if the young guys thought they were sinners or not. They probably had the rocks in their pockets, you know. They were ready. Like Dave said this morning, when you're 28, you're right, you know. And they were, they were ready. And then they saw their elders leave and they thought, okay, now am I going to do this? Well, probably not. Let's just go with them. And now Jesus is there with the woman. Jesus dispensed justice without throwing a stone. He convicted them of their sin without pummeling them. He brought their sin in front of the mirror of the law and said, if you're without sin, go ahead. He's a just and merciful Savior. Because the reality is, you know and I know, he could have stoned them and her. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Because he's just and he's merciful. We're going to end with this. Jesus affirms the sinfulness of the woman. He affirms the sinfulness of the woman. He doesn't negate it. He doesn't say she's not guilty. But he sets her free based on his perfect sacrifice. I believe this story occurred just probably maybe the week of his conviction and crucifixion. I think that because he was in Jerusalem. He was in the Mount of Olives. And Luke records that before he was crucified he was in the Mount of Olives all the time okay every day I think that's where this story fits he's got the cross in his crosshairs when they bring this woman and throw him in front throw her down in front of him he he does admit he does say she's guilty look in verse 9 he's tender in his conviction or his condemnation look what he says Woman, which is a loving way to address a woman. It's the way he dressed his mom. It's the way he dressed 
probably other women. This is loving term, not the old redneck woman. This is this is the this is the this is the loving, tender address. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He's tender with her, isn't he? In direct opposite of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus didn't excuse her sin, but he was tender with her in her sin. Has nobody condemned you? No, she says. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And right now you're thinking, well, he's letting her off the hook totally. Look what he says, though. Go and don't sin anymore. You sin, lady. You're an adulteress. But I forgive you. Now go obey. Don't do it anymore. The Pharisees, these gnashing, hateful dogs want to chew her flesh up and Jesus. And that's the way us self-righteous people are. And the truly converted follow the example of their Lord who says, Lady, you and I both know you're guilty. But I take your guilt. I forgive you. Now go obey me. And don't do it anymore. You're free. You're free. The gospel doesn't thunder from Sinai. The gospel pleads from Zion. Self-righteousness thunders from from Sinai. Christ stands pleading with the sinner from Zion. You're forgiven. I take your wrath. I take your punishment. I take your guilt. You're forgiven. Now go obey. Go obey. So we see a fitting conclusion to the story. Jesus tenderly condemns her sin. Jesus based His forgiveness on the cross. I don't want to overlook that. He says, neither do I condemn you. Which leaves us the implicit question, then who's going to pay? And I've told you, Christ is going to pay. It would not be just mercy. It would just be mercy. If He just said, you're free, go ahead. Get out of free, get out of jail free card. Here you go. If he did that, it'd be merciful, but it'd be unjust. But he says, neither do I condemn you. Why, Jesus? When we ask that question in this text, we get the cross in view. Why did he not condemn her? Because he condemned himself on her behalf. And so if you're here in your self-righteousness today, and you've, you right now got this desperate look on your face like I'm guilty of self-righteousness and I don't know what to do about it. Plead with the Savior. For He has paid your debt. He has taken your guilt. He has died the death of sin so that you might live the life of forgiveness and eternal 
eternal relationship with the Father. If you're here and you're an adulteress or an adulterer, what you have done is sinful. But our Savior is a forgiving God. And He's beckoning you to repent and to not do it anymore. If you're here and you are the victim of adultery, in other words, your spouse has cheated on you, you are free to forgive them and love them and live with them because the gospel says in Christ they are forgiven. And your vindication, the vindication of your right to have this sin paid for, has been taken care of. You don't have to vindicate yourself, spouse, for your spouse's unfaithfulness because God has vindicated you in the cross of His Son. And so the message of this story is not debate about whether it belongs here or there or not. The, the, the beauty of this text is not that we see the Pharisees or the woman. The beauty of this text is that we see that the cross of Jesus Christ has covered the sin of those who believe in Him, and now you are free to go and sin no more. That's the beauty of this text. That's why we preach it. Because... Jesus Christ is worthy of praise and honor. And His character is good and must be esteemed. So what do I want you to leave with? This statement. Travis, if you'll just go to the next. One more. This is, if I was summarizing it, I'd say this. We should offer grace to sinners based on the work of Christ on the cross. We should call ourselves and our fellow believers to a life of obedience as a response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.